Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of IndyCast. My name is Abhishek and joining me over the phone from London is the economist Simon Wright, who since 1989 has been covering a diverse range of subjects from business, commodities, energy, food and sport. And in this issue, he has authored a brilliant special report on natural gas, for which he's here with us. Hi, Simon. Thanks a lot for agreeing to do this. Hello there. Thank you. And Simon, since 1989, you must have the record of, along with some of your colleagues, of going without a byline for the maximum period of time at The Economist. That's quite a long haul. There are quite a few people who have been here quite a bit longer than me, if you can believe that. But it's a very nice place to work, I think, quite apart from anything else. And if you're a journalist, it's one of the best places to work. Right. I know at least one person, uh, Daniel Franklin, who is the executive editor. He's been there since 83. And I sometimes joke with him that, you know, I was born back then. (laughs) Coming to your special report, Simon, you know, we know that The Economist loves to experiment and cover stories from, let's say, shrimp farming to capital punishment. But on the same count, we've read a lot about oil and nuclear energy too, but not so much about natural gas and shale gas that is the heart of your special report. So could we start with what your special report is about and what is shale gas and why is there so much noise around it nowadays? Well, yes, absolutely. Why don't we start with why people don't talk about gas so much? I think that's quite an interesting place to start. And in many ways, gas was often regarded as a sort of poor relation in the oil industry. There's an old oil industry joke that the exploration team ring in and say, we've got good news and bad news. And they say, bad news is we haven't struck oil. And the good news is we haven't found gas. (laughs) And that was because gas is a different sort of hydrocarbon. Oil, you can just put in a barrel. There's a big global market. You can chuck it on the global market and sell it very easily. It's fungible, it's global. Gas, just the very nature of gas, it's very expensive to shift around. Yeah. So if you find gas, you have to find somebody who wants to buy that gas because in order to build the big pipelines, and gas generally works at a very big scale as well, you need to have a lot of investment. And in order to guarantee that investment, you need to find somebody who's going to buy that gas. That's one of the reasons that gas has kind of played second fiddle for a long while. Why that has changed recently is the advent of shale gas. And shale gas is basically gas that is trapped in hard shale rock. So in order to get it out, you need to sort of break that rock up in order to get the gas to flow. In the last five years, it's coming out of the ground, partly because the technology has been developed to get it out of the ground in America. Right. In fact, in your report, you say that until 2000, there was barely any of it in USA. So how has America managed to dig out so much of this stuff in, in so little time? Because a significant percent of its needs are being met by shale gas today as compared to what it was about a decade back. Very much so. Well, there are two reasons. One, you know, gas is great for carbon emissions. Not the Americans sort of worry too much about that. But their carbon emissions have been falling faster than any other country on the planet because gas has been replacing coal in power generation. And it's been doing this partly because of regulations about burning coal in America, but partly because it's just so damn cheap. Small oil and gas prospectors turn to shale gas. And it was basically a sort of mum and pop operations who started going after it first. Because shale gas, unlike conventional gas, can be done on a fairly small scale. And the American gas market basically encouraged it. The American market is different from the rest of the world, which you have gas-on-gas competition. That means the price of gas is set by the supply and demand, whereas elsewhere in the world, gas prices are indexed to the oil price. 
So the result was that you had a market for gas, you've got a big oil services industry, that means there's lots of rigs and people to go after the gas, open access pipelines in America, which means that, you know, if you've got the gas, you can get it to market easily. Also in America, you have the property rights are different to most places in the rest of the world in that the landowner owns the mineral rights underneath their property. So there is a big incentive for people to sell those mineral rights. Everybody makes money. So that's the reason it's taken off so quickly in America. Right. Can oil be substituted in the long run when you compare oil, shale, gas, as well as the nuclear energy, where in Europe, most of Europe, its electricity comes from its nuclear power plants. So how good is it in terms of news to the whole of the world that shale gas is being found in the U.S.? Well, it's very good news for the U.S. That's certainly true. And you asked about substitution for oil and gas. Yes, gas can substitute for oil to a degree. In that it can be used in vehicle transport. But there are significant difficulties in that you need a big gas infrastructure for compressed natural gas vehicles, vehicles that might run on liquefied natural gas, which is another option. Alternatively, you can generate electricity for electric vehicles or, or plug-in hybrids. Or there's another technology called gas-to-liquids, whereby gas can be converted into liquid fuel to uh, fuel vehicles. But as I say, this is very much in its infancy in America. But how that might change things to the rest of the world is another very interesting question. America built quite a big infrastructure for importing liquefied natural gas, but because it's found all this shale gas to add to its conventional gas, it no longer needs to. What that has done is in 2008, when America stopped requiring this gas, mainly from Qatar, which is one of the world's big gas exporters, the gas came to Europe. Now, the European gas markets operate very differently. Most of the gas comes from a quarter of the gas comes from Russia, 15% or so comes from Norway, Algeria, places like that. It's sold on long-term contracts, which are linked to the oil price, rather than gas-on-gas -gas competition, which I talked about earlier, whether it's supply and demand. The liquefied natural gas that could no longer find a home in America came to Europe, to the European spot market, which meant that there was very cheap gas available, much cheaper than the oil index gas coming from Europe and Russia. A little bit of liberalization in the markets meant that small utilities could buy this gas, and they didn't want to buy the gas from the big European wholesalers who were still getting this very expensive gas, which basically forced down the price of gas in Europe, which in time, I reckon, will make Europe a much more liberalized gas market, where gas will just basically be cheaper. You just mentioned about the long-term contracts. I read in your report that... Yeah. The ones who control the market, the Russians and the Middle East, you generally have long-term contracts. So countries have yeah. to enter into long-term contracts. So in business, in consumers, more the competition, the better it is. So in a way, who, yeah. who will stand to gain? Well, I mean, the, the people who are worried about shale gas are undoubtedly Gazprom, Russia's big right. state-owned gas exporter, because they prefer the gas to be sold on long-term contracts indexed to the oil price. The reason gas is indexed to oil is when it first started coming onto the market in the 60s. It was a substitute for heating oil, and it made sense to price it against oil. Now it makes no sense at all, because as we said, it's not really a substitute other than in the very small specialized sort of road transportation. But the oil price is going to remain high for a long time. So that's, you know, that's the reason why sellers of gas might want oil indexation. But of course, for consumers, it would be much better to have a fully competitive market. That's what we're seeing. Right, and you also concede in your report, and I quote, that the European Commission, in a rare display of good sense, has concluded that no new laws are needed to cover the shale gas, you know, beyond already that are in place. 
Why the subtle dig at the European Commission? Why is this a rare display of good sense, Simon? Well, I mean, that was a bit, but you're quite right. That's a bit of a gratuitous dig at the European Commission. But generally, in terms of energy policy, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I call it a policy. It's very difficult to work out what exactly what they're trying to do in Europe. And for once, they've actually done something reasonably sensible because there are certain sort of environmental concerns over uh, shale gas and fracking as a method for getting it out of the ground. And, and what is fracking? In fact, when I typed that on Microsoft Word, it gave me a red line below it. So it, it's reasonably a new word probably added about <laughs> 10 years ago, maybe. So can you tell us, there is a whole article that you dedicate to the process. It was quite yeah. fascinating. You must have been there on the ground while you saw all of that, right? I you? did. I was lucky enough to visit the Marcellus Shale with, uh, with Chevron, who took me to see some of their, some of their uh, gas pads and gas wells. It was fascinating. I have to say that the, it was the, the, the Marcellus Shale, the bit they took me to, was in western Pennsylvania, which I've never visited before. <laughs> but it's um, delightfully pretty there, which I hadn't expected, I have to say. And fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing, which basically means pumping under pressure water, sand and a small amount of chemicals into the shale in order to break up the shale to release the gas that's held held within it. The other technology is horizontal drilling. You go down about 2,000 meters or so and then the drill bit turns horizontal so it can go horizontally through the shale bed in order to get the maximum amount of gas out of it. And the horizontal section can go a mile or more as well underground. So it's, it's, it's quite an undertaking. Right. There is a lot of effort, investment and technology involved. So when do you see this coming to you know countries like India, Argentina or let's say China? Of course, China is way ahead in terms of developing economies. It's, it's way ahead. But when do you see that coming there? Well, it's a very, very good question. One of the problems is, as we talked about earlier, these sort of environmental concerns, concerns that are overblown in many cases. I know France, for example, which has big deposits of seemingly of shale gas, has put a moratorium on drilling for shale gas and fracking. A couple of other European countries have followed suit. Also, South Africa, I think, has done the same. There are questions of, of the chemicals or the gas polluting the water table. So I think that's is something that has been sort of exaggerated by environmental groups who simply don't like hydrocarbons. So that's one of the problems. The real problem is that in America, they've got the open access pipelines, they've got the oil services industry, they've got access to capital, they've got the property rights. And all those sort of things are missing, certainly in Europe, most of them. In China, Again, they have a lot of shale gas there, possibly more than the States. I mean, it's early days. It's difficult to get a good idea about precisely how much there is. But China doesn't have the drill rigs. It doesn't have the people. It's starting to get the technology by having joint ventures both in China with big oil and gas companies and indeed by taking stakes in American shale gas operators. But I I would guess it's going to be five, six years probably before shale gas starts flowing in earnest in China and maybe 10 years or more for other places. And you've got to add another 10 years for bureaucracy in India if, if it has to make it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, India is another question at all. I'm no, I, mean, I have to say I'm no expert on shale gas in India, but I know there's some there. But again, one of the problems that uh, all resources companies have in India is convincing local populations. Right. And is there a hallowed ground where you can spot uh, the rock? Oil drilling is an art. It's hard to know where to dig. One fine day, maybe an, a state in India or China can say, hey, look, this is a place where you can dig a lot, so let's just get in the machinery and uh, stop importing oil from Russia. 
it's a good it's a good question. Poland in Europe is one of the places that's you know embraced shale gas most vigorously, partly because they depend so much on Russia for gas, and they they want to break that dependency. But, and they've issued several licenses, and test wells have been have been sunk in Poland. But I mean, Exxon Mobil pulled out, I think, a, a few weeks back, just because their wells had come up had been disappointing. The other question in China is: some people say that the geology is a bit different; that it's just going to be more difficult to get shale gas out. If we don't still have lights in our house being powered by shale gas, you know, it's conventional electricity, for instance. So we see this very often that the gestation period of the research is just too long. For instance, the affordable green car is still a few more years away. Same is the case with biofuels, which you know, it threatened to replace fuel, and it's still in research phase. So where do you see? shale gas fitting among its cousins here. Given the infrastructure and the attitude, will it be a major, major threat to the Middle East and Russia? And if that happens, then the whole political situation might just come out, if not a spin, there might be a few more cold wars among in there. Would you think, or am I just exaggerating here? Maybe a little. I mean, the great thing about domestic sources of energy is that they contribute to energy or appear to do contribute to energy security. Countries, particularly China, is very worried about securing supplies of energy and other raw materials. It doesn't really like to depend on the Middle East or uh, it's real. In the rest of the world, it's going to take a while. But we shouldn't also ignore the fact that there are lots of new sources of conventional gas coming to market from the eastern Mediterranean, East Africa. Australia is gearing up to become a big exporter of liquefied natural gas, particularly to Asia. Gas is the only hydrocarbon that's share of the primary energy consumption is going to be growing. Right. Simon, how long did you take to get this report out? How many days of research? It's a series of about seven to nine articles. We get five weeks to do the thing, but I have to say that I, some of the work you do beforehand, the reading of the long, dull reports, um, <laughs> right. they're not, when I say they're not dull, of course, but they're, they're long. <laughs> and, you know, I do that beforehand, and some of the interviews would have done beforehand. And then a couple of those weeks are devoted to traveling. So I went to America to see the shale gas in operation. Um, so just pure writing is about three weeks. Wow. And what about the jargons? How do you get somebody to explain you those difficult stuff in oil, gas, shale? How do you manage that? Well, look, you just go and meet people. You know what they're talking about. That's the, <laughs> that's right. the best way of doing that sort of thing. Simon, there's one little thing before we log off. I had some fun with a few of your colleagues and friends who said yes to this. It's a, it's a quick rapid-fire round like they have on television. Okay. Yeah, cool. All right, here we go. So don't think much and I have about five or seven questions. So here we go. How would you describe in one word The Economist's editorial view of the world? At the moment, gloomy. I didn't get that from anyone. That's interesting. And what is your message to a few who opine that The Economist is pitched at an American audience because of its high circulation there? We're pitched at a global audience, and it just so happens that there's a high circulation in America. Cool. Who said this? I used to think, now I just read The Economist. Oh, I've heard that. I'm not sure. Um, it's Larry Ellison from Oracle. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure I've seen it somewhere. It's, it's a good one. <laughs> As an editor... Name one journalistic liberty that your correspondent takes and something that you will be willing to condone or pardon. Sorry, I didn't quite get it. Can you repeat sure, the question? I didn't sure. quite hear that. If, if I were your correspondent and if yep. I file a story with you, name one journalistic liberty that you will be willing to pardon in me. So I took a couple of liberties. What are the ones that you'll be willing to you know, overlook? Oh... I take a quite hard line, actually. I don't think I'll be overlooking anything. No, no liberties. 
No liberties. Oh my goodness. No, none, none at all. <laughs> That's a tough gig then working for you, Simon. But, <laughs> so anything that you've struck out because it stuck out? Any example that comes to mind? There's a journalistic tick where a sentence is written with the word well in the middle of it, which means nothing. And I always take that out. And I see it all the time in journalism and I hate it. Using the word well as a sort of um, a piece of punctuation. Ah, got it. If if The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? Um, again, good question. Uh, how about Roadrunner? I don't know why that is. It's just my <laughs> favourite cartoon character. All right. We don't know much about him in India. What does he do, Roadrunner? He goes, meep, meep, and runs quickly. <laughs> From Wiley Coyote. You must have seen. You must have, must have come to India, surely. Right, right, right. One, one final question. Tell me, you've been there since 1989. What's one of the biggest compliments that you've received in your stint? And first of all, you guys don't have bylines. Yeah. So people don't know when you do stuff. What is the biggest compliment? You must cherish those. You've been working there for a while. Anything that comes to mind? Mm, no, I can't think so. The biggest compliment is when one of my colleagues actually admits to have read something I've written and says that they liked it. That's beautiful. One final one. Do you think Andy Murray will win a Grand Slam one day? Yes, he might do. <laughs> we hope so. If you'd asked me about Tim Henman, I'd have said no, but uh, Andy Murray may be. <laughs> you, you guys have very brutally renamed the Henman Hill to Murray Mount without really asking Henman at all. The huge mount outside Wimbledon where people come and watch on the big screen. You're quite right. Well, Tim Henman commentates over here and I think he understands. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Simon, for your time. This was great. Good stuff. Thank you. Bye-bye.